I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny, an urban planner with Gould Evans, and today I am once again joined by Chuck Marone, CEO and founder of the Strong Towns organization, who is unfortunately recovering from a <laughs> voting accident. Uh, that makes it sound more dramatic than it is. <laughs> um, let's call it a boating accident. That sounds really uh, kind of splashy. We were done boating and I was, you know, getting out of the boat on land and in my clumsy way tripped and uh, yeah, I have eight fractures in my right foot now to show for it. Yeah. So I get to spend the most beautiful part of the summer sitting with my foot elevated and limping around and yeah. I, I'm not going to complain. There's a lot of people who have it harder than me, but it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, that is a bummer. I'm so sorry to hear that. I tried to warn you that boat stands for bust out <laughs> another thousand. That's uh, not exactly what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. I live in Minnesota and Minnesota, we have boat people and I've kind of resisted being a boat person for, for just that reason. Like I'm, you know, I didn't want like a something that would suck up all my money and I'm kind of resourceful. So like there's a couple things that need to be fixed on it and I've worked on those. Yeah. I didn't think this would happen either, but. Uh. Well, I, I wish you a speedy recovery. Thank you. This happened and my wife and daughters left on a, a scheduled trip. They all go to the wilderness canoe area with her family every summer. There's a limited number of people. So I volunteer not to go. So more of their family can go. So I had a, like a week home by myself, which I was looking forward to. And then the day before <laughs> this happened. And so I'm like limping around all by myself. And I just realized like for people who are elderly and like shut in and incapable of doing things, you know, simple things for themselves because they're infirm or what have you, I've always had empathy, but I have like a greater degree of empathy because that there's a light at the end of the tunnel for mine. Like just making yourself breakfast is impossible. You know, it just takes like an hour to do something stupid, like pour yourself a bowl of cereal and make a bagel, you know? I totally know what you're talking about. <laughs> I um, tore my ACL a few years ago and had surgery. Oh. And for probably, I don't know, maybe several months, I was on crutches trying to build back muscle in my in my knees so that I could walk normally and just getting like a glass of water from the kitchen to it reminded me of the floor is lava where you're trying to put this glass of water on different items until you can get it across the house that's exactly into, what I would do yes yes so it's like even to just get get to the to a dining room from the kitchen is a major issue well, and I, I think for people who know people who have this kind of thing, I was struggling. Everything hurt and wasn't getting better. And then my wife and kids got home and then they started like doing things for me. Uh, <laughs> and all of a sudden everything started to get better. And it really was that I just was kind of pushing myself too hard when they were gone. Having that someone to care for you and help with like those little things, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, because you just get discouraged and frustrated when you're trying to just move things around using random items in the house and 
I feel your pain. So well, I, thank I you. Hope that you have a quick six recovery. Weeks. Six, yep, weeks. six weeks. That's all I got. It's Good. it's uh, it's manageable. I keep saying it's less than basic training was, and I I remember counting the days in June and July, you know, in August that summer many many years ago, and I'm like I can count days in July and August again. It's not a big deal. No problem. You no will problem. Get through this. Yes. So. We'll move on to the article that we will be discussing today, um, which was published in The Guardian by Rowan Moore, entitled, Wasteful, Damaging, and Outmoded, Is It Time to Stop Building Skyscrapers? Last week, we actually talked about why we should stop building more roads, and now we've come across an article that is saying to stop building skyscrapers, and I promise that that is unintentional. In this article, the author cites an engineer named Tin Snelson, who recently wrote a piece that claims that typical skyscrapers will have at least double the carbon footprint of a 10-story building of the same floor area due to resources that go into the building and supporting very tall buildings, also called embodied energy, which includes more steel and concrete production to support the structure and excess energy that is used to cool and heat them as well as running lifts. The author actually goes on to make some really bold statements calling skyscrapers a well-worn and old-fashioned building type and that they represent various different themes throughout the world, including economic dynamism, the ability of a few members of an authoritarian society to accrue vast wealth for themselves, as well as failed planning. So as a whole, he says that skyscrapers often indicate corruption rather than markers of progress. So the author obviously feels very passionate about skyscrapers, and it's interesting to align this discussion with what I see as a core principle of strong towns, which is that we've got to stop relying on big, shiny projects to build our way out of existing challenges. I will admit I am a little bit of a sucker for a great skyline. I'm very proud of Kansas City skyline. So I see the value of skyscrapers from that perspective, but I'd really like to hear your first impressions on this article, Chuck. Do you think that it's time to stop building skyscrapers? This article is another one of those affirming my bias kind of things. The very first line in this article, if no one ever built a skyscraper ever again, anywhere, would we truly miss them? I'm like, okay, I don't have to read any more of this article. No, I would not. I know that there are people who would, and I appreciate what you're saying about the skyline. I feel like there's three arguments here, and I feel like two he's discussed in the article. Let's talk about the first one, which is the environmental impact. Skyscrapers have been sold for a long time, and, and urban living as kind of like a synonym, which I, I think is not really, the, the two things are not equal, but let's pretend for a second that they are. The idea that the more density we can have, the more people we can pack into one place, the lower the overall like footprint is. So lower carbon footprint, lower like physical footprint, less environmental damage uh, overall. And so ergo, build buildings as tall as you can with as many people as you can and pack them into a small place. And what he's arguing here, and I, I think he's right. I mean, I think this is true, is that there's a limit on that. There's a limit where the amount of stuff you have to do to build, sustain one of these buildings overwhelms whatever kind of environmental gain you're getting from going tall. 
he says 10, 12 stories, yes. But as soon as you're up 20, 50, 100 stories, you're talking about massive foundations, huge amounts of geologic work, different types of steel and energy consumption patterns. Leon Creer, the great architect who I think has described visually the post-World War II development pattern better than anyone else, just calls these things vertical sprawl. I mean, he refers to skyscrapers as basically the vertical uh, homogenized style of development that is the not the antithesis of suburban development, but is basically the, the urban analog. It's the same thing. From a finance standpoint, it is the same thing. When you build a suburban subdivision with a thousand homes, you're basically bringing large amounts of capital in to do something very efficient in one place. When you're building a skyscraper, it's essentially the same mechanism. And so I think the idea of skyscrapers as somehow uh, the answer to environmental challenges is something that is incorrect and we need to get over pretty quickly. When I was a student, a colleague actually brought the idea up to me that we should stop building skyscrapers, saying that it's an obsolete building type. And at the time, I was kind of taken aback at that kind of statement, but it was followed up with the idea that urban centers should instead adopt kind of the Paris model, meaning that they just allow six to eight stories everywhere. When you look at cities like Paris or Madrid or Florence, these very old cities, you see an urban development pattern that is very different from the way that we build city centers in the U.S. and Canada and more recently in places like Asia. This contemporary development pattern for cities, for those who aren't aware, has I think a technical planning term called concentric zone model, which basically means that you have an urban core of skyscrapers surrounded by less dense surroundings that transition from these kind of semi-dense mixed use zones further out to urban neighborhoods all the way to suburban areas and, and sprawl. This is a pretty typical pattern for mid to large size American cities, even small cities. You have all the density concentrated in one place with less dense sprawling surroundings. So in older traditional cities, you often can't really even tell where the center of the city is supposed to be because there's a consistency of six to eight story buildings that actually support a very efficient development pattern without having skyscrapers at all to really delineate where the center of the city is. If we're just concerned with environmental benefits of an efficient development pattern, we can easily see how what, what I'll just call the Paris model supports an incredibly high level of residential density while taking a completely different form and character as an urban core of skyscrapers surrounded by neighborhoods. I'm not necessarily saying that we should just upzone everywhere in America to six stories, but in places where the development market is somewhat limited, there is a rationale for opting out of building skyscrapers and building more six to eight story buildings. If I were looking at downtown Kansas City, that's what I would do throughout the entire thing. I would say six to 10 stories everywhere, like through the whole like core of the downtown. Um, but I would limit it to that myself. There's a second argument in this article that gets a, a little bit towards that. 
I don't want to sell it short or I don't want to trigger people into thinking of a certain way by calling it like a social justice argument or an equity argument, but he does make a little bit of a, a kind of quasi that argument in the piece. You know, he talks about skyscrapers as being uh, the architecture of, you know, the well-heeled. As I was reading it, it reminded me of spending time in Bologna, uh, the, the great Italian city. And when you walk around Bologna, the buildings are, um, I don't know, four stories, maybe five or six stories in some places. But there are these towers all over. And the towers were built by wealthy families, essentially as a way to project their wealth. You can think of Trump Tower in, uh, you know, in New York City today or, or, you know, in Chicago or what have you. These skyscrapers become, you know, the Rockefeller Center. They become like showcases for the wealthy in a sense, like an advertisement. And in Bologna, that's what you had. You had these different towers and it would be like a family tower and it would tower above the city. And if you built one, uh, the next family would come along a generation later and build one just slightly taller than yours. And that meant they were, you know, a better family. I would read it the way that he's reading it, but, but slightly differently. What you're seeing in a skyscraper is you're seeing the capacity of one individual or you know one corporation, a collection of wealthy individuals to mobilize capital to do a large project that in a sense crowds out everybody else. It crowds out everybody else in a city like Kansas City because it sucks up the market demand. It's a risk that less well-heeled people can't take. It makes smaller risks less doable because you're essentially competing with this large, you know, this, this large player in the market. I think just from a building of a city standpoint, it creates a massive like distorting ripple that I, I think, you know, we can think through what some of those consequences are, but I think even if we spent time doing that, you wouldn't nearly come up with all of them. They're almost like hidden by this very large distortion. It is, I'll go back to what I said before, it's the same kind of a distortion you see with you know the, the rapid horizontal development. You're just seeing it manifest in vertical development. And I, I know people who are city versus suburb look at their version of distortion as good and the other version of distortion as bad. To me, they're two manifestations of the same exact distortion. Oh, yes. The the classic family skyscraper. We all have one in our family. When I think about skyscrapers, I, I'm kind of wondering, I, my first thought was kind of what is driving them to be built in the first place and who they're really for, who they're serving. The title of your book says, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. And I neither think of skyscrapers as bottom-up or necessarily building prosperity for a broad spectrum of existing residents anyway. Maybe they help like to attract tourism and that can be good for the local economy, but I'm skeptical about their long-term relevance mostly. Strongtowns often talks about being careful about pursuing moonshot projects as a way of building economic prosperity. When we talk about moonshot projects, I often think of big, flashy projects. Every city seems to be getting these days projects like airport terminals, new stadiums, convention centers, convention center hotels, basically projects that are worthy of big ribbon cuttings. 
Skyscrapers to me seem to be one of those types of projects, and they're more so marketed as monuments that do signal wealth and prosperity of the investors or the developers or even, you know, of the city city's political elite. In my own city, we often see quite a bit of tax incentives that are given towards building skyscrapers. And, you know, if the market is limited, then I have concerns about concentrating the market into one big project rather than seeing multiple sites throughout an area built with four to six story buildings or, or even more than that. So this isn't really a perfect comparison, but this discussion kind of reminds me of um, that brilliant illustration produced by, I think it's Bivon and Liberados. It's, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it depicts two development types with the same density, but the difference in the patterns is really that the design and the ownership structures. One is a Texas development style, which is basically one big block-sized apartment project built all at once into a finished state with the parking garage within the internal block. And the other is a traditional, more fine-grained development pattern showing a block made up of many small projects with a diversity of housing types, commercial types, um, and a variety of ownership, presumably. The skyscraper model reminds me more of the Texas donut approach to building cities, where the drivers of development are concentrated and the ownership of the properties is concentrated. When we think about how we want to build our cities, there's elements of development that are much more than just physical and patterns that enable ownership and communities shaped by many hands is incredibly important. While skyscrapers may have a role to play, I'm just hesitant to see them as a building type that really cultivates long-term community value and individual prosperity. They do certainly make for a great postcard. Yeah. Let me build on that. I think you're right. It's important to note that, you know, the the drawing of the Texas Donut is like a six-story building. What you're latching on to is that build all at once to a finished state problem. And the core problem of that is not that the building that's built is undesirable. I'm not a big fan of the Texas Donut. I would prefer Charleston. Um, but there's some people who don't, there's some people who like the Texas donut. So it's, it's not that there's not a market for this. It's not that it doesn't improve property values. It's not that it's not a, a worthy investment. The problem with building all at once to a finished state in that way is that you have the maintenance echo that comes with it. So, you know, in Charleston where it's built incrementally in the same, you know, framework, even if you don't prefer the aesthetics, what you look at is you're looking at a framework where if one building in there goes bad, someone is not able to maintain it, they you know, lose their job, they lose their income, it you know, goes into receivership or whatever it is, that becomes in the framework of this entire system an investment opportunity, an opportunity for someone to buy in and improve that property and actually get more out of it. The Texas donut becomes a pass-fail proposition. It is either all going to pass or it's all going to fail. There's no renewal mechanism. There's no like natural rebirth kind of mechanism. It's either going to pass or at some point it will fail. And over time, because of the way things are, are, are just built, when you build an entire block all at once, what happens is after 30 years, the roof needs to be fixed. 
And it doesn't need to be fixed on one of the buildings within the block, like the Charleston block. It needs to be fixed in the entire thing. Uh, all the pavement surfaces need to be fixed at the same time because they're all built at the same time. They all wear down at the same rate. And basically you have this big bill that comes up. When you build a skyscraper, when you build a Texas donut, when you build one of these monstrous buildings, you're building it with the assumption that a generation from now, the capital will be there and available to do all the things you have to do to maintain that and take care of it and basically redo the building. And it will be available a generation after that and a generation after that and a generation after that. And so if your city should ever stop growing, if those property values should ever stop rising, if you should have a period where you go through a decade or two or three of just kind of stagnation and just hanging on and just being like a normal city, like a Milan or a Paris, if you froze Paris in time for 100 years and then came back to it, it would still be a valuable city. If you do that to downtown Kansas City, it falls apart completely. It cannot withstand it because of this building type. And, and that's the fragile situation. To me, that's not part of this Guardian article, but to me, that's the most damning part of the skyscraper approach is that you are essentially committing to continuous accelerating levels of growth in order to sustain what you have, continually accelerating levels of prosperity. And I think, you know, we can just look around and recognize that, you know, no one would have predicted where we would be in July of 2020, uh, even as, you know, early as uh, February of 2020. The idea that we can predict 20 years, 30 years from now is just, it's absurd. It's an absurdity. And we're gambling so much on our capacity to do that. I think it's accepting that humans and human models um, are not are, are not going to surpass failure and that we need to scale failure to the human, which is basically, you know, human scale failure. I'd, I'd much rather have a, a house next door to mine that um, gets neglected than an entire block in a neighborhood be neglected because it's one building with one owner it's much easier to absorb the risk of smaller properties failing and, and eventually having somebody come and, and fix them up. That, that's the beauty of, you know, what I would think of as an incremental model. It doesn't necessarily mean incremental in time, but incremental in, in ownership and just the, the entire structure of how things renew and over time. Well, and we can aspire to build the Colosseum. I mean, we can aspire to build the Pantheon. I think what we've done here in North America that's different than that. I mean, those buildings have lasted thousands of years and they're iconic. The thing that we did is we said, well, you know, what made Rome great was the Colosseum and what made Rome great was the Pantheon instead of recognizing that those were actually the culmination of a lot of, a lot of small greatness. We just said, let's build the skyscraper. Let's build the stadium. Let's build the power and light district. Let's build, you know, the big flashy thing and, and then all the other stuff will result. And that is getting it backward. That's getting the cause and effect inverse. That is a really good point. And I hadn't really thought about it that way. But it is kind of like we're rewarding ourselves for how great we are without building up the baseline. So all of those, all of those iconic structures and those big developments are only really skin deep, which is unfortunate. What we've built is very fragile. is It's is ridiculously fragile, and you know, with with 
there are some apocalyptic visions of America that have, you know, our cities abandoned and these skyscrapers abandoned. I don't necessarily buy into that as like, you know, our destiny by any way. But if you told me that like 30 years from now, we had large parts of our central cities that were skyscrapers that are, you know, boarded up and abandoned and not really salvageable. I mean, it's not like you have an old building from the early 1900s that someone is fixing up and making use of. You've got a, you know, a steel glass skyscraper where the windows have fallen out or been taken out and now it just stands there and like no one knows what to do with it. That would not shock me at all if a generation from now that's a ubiquitous experience of big cities. Well, I think that we'll end on that note today. On that happy note. (laughs) On that happy apocalyptic (laughs) outcome. (laughs) But before we end this episode of Upzoned, it is time for the Down Zone, which is the part of this show where we get to share anything that we have been listening to, reading, or just other things that have been captivating our time and attention. Chuck, now that you are in recovering mode from your accident, what have you been up to these days? Well, that the week that my family was gone, I basically sat around and I slept uh, like half the day. And the other half, I was I was working on my book, I was writing, but then I watched a lot of TV. And so I watched um, like three seasons of the show Yellowstone, uh, which is was really good. I enjoyed it. Kevin Costner. I watched a lot of movies. I watched Fight Club for the first time. Never seen that movie. Heard so much about it. Um, very interesting. I was not expecting some things that happened in that movie. Um, read a couple books. The one that I'm almost done with now that I'm enjoying is a Jeff Shara book. I might've mentioned in an earlier episode. Uh, it's called To Wake the Giant, a novel of Pearl Harbor. He writes historic fiction. And so it takes the characters that were there and it follows things through their eyes as they're telling it and speaking. So it's fictionalized, but it's a, uh, it's a historical fiction. And it's, I've always liked his work. It's very, uh, it's very fun and entertaining. For mine, there's this book that I've had for a while called Drawing the Landscape by Chip Sullivan. It's basically a book of drawing exercises that are meant to help build up your skills um, so that you can draw things like landscape architecture and architecture Um, Since I was in urban design school, I used to spend a lot of time drawing in my early 20s, but quickly transitioned to graphic design in my professional work. I am now anticipating a very long winter. If the coronavirus situation doesn't improve much by November, we're just going to need something to do to entertain for the winter. So I think I've talked about this before, but I'm not really much of a fan of winter time. So I want to start building back my drawing skills so that I can paint something. I've decided that this winter I'd like to get a large canvas and a set of oil paints and spend the winter on one large painting that I don't know what it will be yet, but uh, in preparation of pursuing that project, I am spending time drawing as a way to kind of get my head back into the practice. That's fantastic. I'm just ordering the book right now. It looks awesome. <laughs> it's a great book. It it makes you start by going through very tedious like drawing circles, like drawing like a thousand circles and then drawing a bunch of lines. So it actually does start, you know, from the 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 core movements to get your muscle memory back up. 
I'm kind of disappointed because I, I'm left-handed and I recently, this morning, broke something and gashed my finger open. So now I have a big tape situation on one of my fingers, so I'm not going to be able to hold a pen this weekend probably. So hopefully I don't need stitches or anything. I, I haven't looked at it yet. Ugh. Oh, well. <laughs> I am left-handed too, and I understand how you know you get a little bit that way. This does look fascinating. I will say, I was kind of hoping I could talk you into moving to Brainerd, uh, even understanding you didn't like winter, because we really get into winter. We enjoy it here. But the house next door to me sold last week. It's been for sale for like three months, and it finally sold. And we have no idea who. So we're going to be meeting a brand new family here pretty soon. But uh, yeah, disappointment there. I was I was hoping to uh, convince you that what you needed to do was not avoid winter, but just embrace it like really deeply. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint. I'm sure your new neighbors won't be anywhere near as as fun as we are. But yeah, we've we've kind of rooted here in Kansas City for a bit. You know, we've we recently bought a house. Kind of a weird time to buy a house, but nonetheless, we did it. I really do love my neighborhood. It does get cold here. So I, I'd like to learn how to lean into winter a little bit more, but that's just easier said than done. Well, I feel you're too far south to do it because you have to really get like ice skating rinks and sledding and like all the, like, you know, all the stuff that comes with a nice long, deep winter. You can't do it when you just get, you know, a little bit of winter. It's just, you just get, what you get is you get our November in our March, which is just cold and wet and not very much fun. That's no fun. It's like, a, it's like a, you know, the best part of winter is the part where it gets really cold and then you can do all kinds of fun stuff. So the best part of winter is the time that it gets very cold. Yeah. <laughs> Cause then you get frozen ice, you get ice fishing, you get skating, you get sledding, you get you know, there's a whole bunch of things you get when you just have it like moderately cold. It's just cold, you know, but you don't get any of the other fun stuff. I'll convince you. I, I could see what you're saying. And, you know, basically Kansas City winter is nowadays we don't get a lot of snow, which is kind of weird. And then it's basically just overcast for five months, which is yeah, it's just not kind fun. of a bummer. Well, go north, go north, Abby. Go north. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you. Thank you.